0: This is Rick Jones of Fishbait Marketing, and you're listening to From the Bridge. Today is the last show of season number one. We're going to be taking a little break. I'll be back with you in June. Uh, So today we're going to have a a little bit of a different show. We're entitling it Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, Politics, and Religion. I know everything you're not supposed to talk about Oh, well, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to be politically incorrect in this final session of From the Bridge in season number one. I've got an amazing guest speaker. He's Brad Todd of On Message, a guy who combines a whole lot of everything we've discussed this season. Brad runs uh, his own uh, marketing agency in the political world, and he's also my client at our charity, Coach to Cure MD. As always, we'll have another Tuesday Tip and our final segment for this season of On the Road with Rick. Got a big show, so let's dive right in. Can you imagine a show where we're gonna talk sex, drugs, rock and roll, politics, and religion, uh, all the politically incorrect things? <laughs> really, this is a sneak peek at next year's podcast series because we're gonna replace the Tuesday Tip next year with the soapbox. So today's show is a series of my own soapbox opinions. Yes, these are my opinions. After all, you should never let the truth get in the way with your opinions. (laughs) Of course, I'm kidding. Well, maybe kind of kidding. But I'm still going to be opinionated today in this final show of the series. So here's my first soapbox. In 1985, ABC Sports, who had been the broadcast partner of the 1984 games in L.A., had a sales meeting right after the games, and they created a video that was really then a spoof of corporate sponsorships. They took footage of the 4x400 relay from the previous Olympic Games in 84, that was the Team, the American team anchored by Carl Lewis that won the gold. And in this spoof video, they had everything sponsored. When they lined up in each lane, each team had a sponsor. In lane one, Italy and Pizza Hut. In lane two, the German team powered by BMW. In lane three, the U.S. A team powered by Chrysler and McDonald's. It was hilarious. Everything was sponsored. Then they got into the blocks and said, the starter's gun presented by the National Rifle Association. <laughs> then, when they took off, each handoff of the baton was sponsored by somebody. I remember this first handoff brought to you by Mr. Goodrich. Hand over your card to the best. And then finally, this is the Miller Lite handoff. You want to have Miller Lite for those final uh, stretches because it won't fill you up. Then they crossed the Ford finish. It was totally a spoof then. I remember getting a copy of that video and leading up into the 96 games in Atlanta, I showed it to some executives from a company then called Northern Telecom, and none of them laughed. In fact, they insisted that they had been there. And my partner, Lance Hill, at the time said, we, we can't work with these people. They don't have a sense of humor. Um, this really was a spoof video, but today it's real and it's not pretty. Am I the only one that thinks that the radio broadcast of College Sports is totally stupid with the sponsor mentions within the broadcast? I listen to Sirius satellite radio when I travel, so I get to listen to a whole lot of games, and those games are brought to you by the home team's local broadcast uh, group. And I absolutely wince when I hear, it's another Anderson Furniture first down, or he crosses the Bobby's Body Shop goal line, or they're in the Red Cross red zone. Does anyone think that makes the listener want to rush out to Bobby's Body Shop? Really? I know what you're trying to do, but it's still stupid. Folks, broadcast should be all about the fan. What's in it for the fan with the Anderson furniture first down? Well, that would be nothing. Soapbox number two. We run a tour for Dollar General and ESPN events going around the country to various college football games. And one of the things that we found is that the majority of the college fan fest are simply pitiful, not bad, pitiful. The first word in fan fest is fan, and there's little to nothing in it for the fan. I blame the properties for the lack of creativity you got to work with the sponsors. You've got to make them bring value to fans. Plus, you need to change the show each week. Let's face it. You have seven home games. You have a fan fest. I'm a fan. About 85% of the people that come to the games come every week. So you got the same fans coming back week after week after week. So I come to your fan fest week one. And then I come back week two, and nothing has changed. Why would I ever come back for game three, four, five, six, or seven? You've got to change the show. Please look at your fan fest and think like a fan. Soapbox number three. We've talked a lot in our previous show about properties supporting charities and causes. Well, a couple years ago, I watched all of these NFL teams highlight soldiers returning from the Middle East and being greeted by their families. So families are at an NFL game, and uh, suddenly their loved one appears, and they get to see them for the first time. I thought that was kind of cool, and then I found out the NFL actually charges the government for that, and then I was appalled by that. I'm appalled when people cannot help charities and causes without taking money for themselves. We recently had our Coach to Cure MD Day, which is the last Saturday in September where my coaches wear patches on the sidelines. For the first time this year, many of our schools would not run our PSAs because they weren't getting paid. Really? We're trying to find a cure for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, and you want to get paid. Are we really that greedy that we have to charge charities in the military? Well, obviously we are. Soapbox number four, game times. You know, we ran our tour with Dollar General the last couple of years in the Big 12, and we found out that so many of the games were those noon Eastern time games because of television, which meant in central time zones, those games began at 11 o'clock. That's not good for fans. Who wants to come start tailgating at 5 a.m. in the morning? It's not good for fans. So how about making a rule that only two games per year per school are started at noon for each home school? And now, my final soapbox of the day, name, image, and likeness. Regarding the new legislation from California and the pending legislation in multiple states, including Florida, Illinois, New York, and South Carolina, among others, it reminds me of the song Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett. The song moves from it's nobody's fault to, well, it could be my fault, to the conclusion of it's my own damn fault. And at the end of the day, it's our own fault for those of us who work in collegiate athletics. We have failed miserably to make a case for the value of a free college education. Former Michigan head basketball coach John Beeline, who's now the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA, once told me that he had computed the value of playing basketball at Michigan for four years exceeded $2 million. When you count tuition, room, board, books, tutors, training table, nutritionists, trainers, physicians, flights, first-class hotels, international trips, tournament trips, and the rest of the extras they provide for their players. We have also failed to make a case that, yes, football does pay all the bills, but those bills include scholarships for all the athletes in the other non-revenue-producing sports creating opportunities for thousands of students. We've also failed by not educating certain student-athletes with meaningful skills and degrees and programs that ensure jobs beyond professional sports. Yes, I am saying that we have exploited many, many young people, all in the name of win at any cost. But as Tanya Tucker sang so eloquently, it's a little too late to do the right thing now. The cat is now out of the bag, and the genie is out of the bottle. So where do we go from here? Firstly, a university's brand is at stake, and that brand is extremely valuable. A brand is nothing more but nothing less than the promise of this product or service in the minds of the consumer. In this case, in the minds of the student, the student athletes, the parents, the alumni, the faculty, and fans of that institution. Schools have already outsourced their brand to third-party multimedia rights holders, which often erodes the value of that school's brand. Now we may have further erosion with student-athletes giving their endorsement to third-parties who may or may not be connected to their institution. I know the California law will prohibit athletes from endorsing companies who compete directly with official school sponsors, but also now we're only one judge away from overturning that policy. Secondly, student athletes are still young people, and young people often make mistakes. Note to self, so do a lot of old people, including yours truly. Part of the education system is allowing students to take chances and learn from those experiences. But mistakes in branding will be both public and long lasting. So what should we do going forward? I am suggesting that schools now must partner with their MMR partners to help student athletes maximize their income potential while still protecting the value of their institutional brands and their institutional corporate sponsors, who are also a big part of the funding machine of college athletics. And don't discount school control partnerships with the various media companies supporting college athletics. Folks like ESPN, Turner, CBS, NBC, Fox, Barstool Sports, Bleacher Report, among others, and also other organizations that can bring value to all of the integrated parties involved. So in essence schools, and all the rest of us who work in college athletics now need to lead. In other words, have lunch or be lunch. Now here's the final Tuesday tip of the season. Let's stay political. One word, vote or shut up. If you don't exercise your personal right to vote, then you have no business complaining about anything relating to local, state, or the national government. And if your person loses, then stop complaining that the rules are not fair. Your candidate knew the rules when they ran. So please, if you wanna change things, get out there and vote. Our special guest angler today is Brad Todd of On Message. Brad basically runs political campaigns for conservative candidates, and he's going to tell you a little bit about that. But he's also um, the founder of the Coach to Cure MD charity. Uh, He'll tell us a little bit about that. He's also the author, -author, co-author, along with Selena Zito, of The Great Revolt, inside the populist coalition reshaping american politics we're gonna have a lot of fun with brad today so let's welcome brad to the bridge brad welcome to from the bridge good morning thanks for having me well listen pal let's start with this you're a big sports guy and you're a big college football guy where did that start
1: well, if you grew up in big orange country like I did, you can't help but uh, be a big college football fan. It's something you're born with, you know. And I, I grew up maybe 45 miles west of Knoxville, Tennessee, a little community called Clack's Gap, uh, kind of halfway between Harriman and Oak Ridge, all places nobody's heard of. Uh, and, you know, my dad had dropped out of college uh, partly because he'd spent too much time on the road following the Tennessee Vols and not enough time in class. Uh, and it had gone back to school years later at night at UT as well. Um, and, you know, and the, one of the rare luxuries we had was season tickets to Tennessee games. And so, uh, you know, I started, I went to my first game, I think, when I was five years old, uh, Tennessee and Clemson. It was a one point game. I uh, still remember it. And uh, uh, I, you know, kind of got hooked. Um, and I, I ended up, not going to college at the University of Tennessee. I went to a small liberal arts school in Memphis, Tennessee, and then went to grad school at the University of Missouri. So still to this day, I follow the Tennessee Vols and the Mizzou Tigers.
0: Now, where did you go to college in, in Memphis? Did you go to Rhodes? Rhodes, yes. Yeah, I was the basketball coach at Swanee. And obviously at that time it was called Southwestern at Memphis before it became Rhodes and... You know the cheer was uh, southwestern, southwestern. The school by the zoo, where the men are men and the girls are too. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. We, we have to- one
1: about Swanee, but it's even <laughs> less
0: PC than that. So
1: I'll, I'll, I'll probably not suitable for a family podcast.
0: Well, it's interesting. Today's title of our final podcast of season number one is entitled Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, Politics, and Religion. It is uh, my my politically incorrect final version that I'm trying to piss off as many people as I can, and they can't get to me for about six months till the next I drug.
1: think that's a shameless <laughs> appeal for listeners, is what
0: I think that is. I think it probably is, too. So you may know this, Brad, a couple things. I... Um, I actually worked on the original All Things Mizzou campaign. Uh, I, yeah, I came to the university and said, are you Missouri, 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 Missouri? Uh, Missouri? Um, uh, you know, are you the Clemson Tigers, the Auburn Tigers, the Grambling Tigers, or the Mizzou Tigers? But ultimately, I said, you're All Things Mizzou, and that turned out to be a great, great campaign. Um, you know, for them. Um, let's switch gears a minute uh, and let's talk politics. Tell me a little bit about On Message, how you got into it, what you do uh well, you know it's a very you're in a very i, I talked about college sports you you're in maybe more of a competitive business uh and your and and your season comes to an end in a hurry yeah it, uh, it is it's yeah. a lot like it's a lot like
1: sports by the way it's uh you know someone someone once said it's a combination of big time sports you know because it's uh, uh it is very time deadline oriented and and, and you end up being very invested in a big few big projects over a fairly reasonably long period of time, and uh, they greatly determine your success or failure. I make television commercials for um, U.S. Senate campaigns, governors' campaigns, congressional campaigns, some trade associations, some corporate work, uh, you know, corporate crisis communications, uh, and that's uh, that's that's sort of what we do. We're the firemen. You know, you uh, you have a really big problem, and there's time-sensitive deadline uh to it and you have to communicate to a large number of people and change public opinion in a fairly short period of time that's what we do uh one of my business partners is a pollster uh as well and we have a digital component to our agency so we're a multi-platform agency have been since 2009 which is where where our business is going but you know rick i didn't i didn't start out this way i started out as a sports writer and um I got my first job writing for, I uh, got a paycheck writing for a commercial newspaper when I was 14, if you can believe that, uh, and um, I was the last guy cut on my high school basketball team, and the next day, I got a call from the publisher of the paper in our little area, and he said, I hear you have time on your hands and can write, um, and so hey, that that's how it started. I, I worked my way through college at the Commercial Appeal in Memphis, Tennessee, in the sports department, and uh, Eventually decided I wanted to try my hand at political journalism. And then after trying that for a while, I realized that I didn't want to be writing about politics. I wanted to be making it happen. So that's, that's sort of my trajectory.
0: Well, it's interesting. You talk about political campaigns and college football. The, you know, the great teams and the great coaches make adjustments at halftime. Uh, and I, I think a political campaign is very much the same way. You got to read the tea leaves. You got to say we're four weeks out. What are we doing r- well? And what, where are we getting hurt? And then you got to make an adjustment. Um, no, no question. And, and, you, and, and you're making adjustments even as
1: you're acting, you know, you don't really get the break. You have to keep, keep adjusting as you move. And, uh, you start out with a campaign plan and, uh, at first, uh, contact, it often gets thrown
0: away and, Reformatted entirely. Well, you recently wrote a book, uh, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Uh, Tell me about your co writer, uh, Selena Zito.
1: Selena is a a journalist based in Pittsburgh. She writes for the New York Post and the Washington Examiner, and she's a contributor to CNN. And uh, she is widely credited. Everybody says she was the first, uh, the only journalist who got Trump's election right uh, in real time and predicted he would win. Uh, Selena t- stays away from the Beltway. She, she spends most of her time traveling, sort of the back roads, uh, literally, of American politics. And she avoids the interstate. She avoids chain hotels. Um, you know, she's, and she doesn't, she, I have to tell you, she's the best listener I've ever been around. Uh, and so, she and I wrote this book, uh, and I did uh, sort of the macro trends and uh, what's happening in American politics. Is that we think there's a realignment occurring, which those only happen they only happen four or five times in our in modern political history. So it's a fairly uh, momentous thing. These things tend to last 40 years or so when we realign. Uh, and Selena uh, spent months on the road uh, interviewing voters, and we came up with uh, a group of archetypes uh, for what we view as sort of different types of Trump voters and some survey research to back up our, our assertions. And so that's what the book is. It, it lets you meet uh, you know, a group of a couple dozen Trump voters who fit in uh, you know, a half dozen or so archetypes uh, and, and help figure out how they came to the decision they came to. And, and then we ask at the end of the book, OK, that was one election. What does this mean going forward? And what's it mean beyond politics? What's it mean for corporate America and commercial sales in America and uh, does this realignment uh, thing that's happening in politics have a spillover? Uh, so that's the that's the point of the book. That's why we call it the Great Revolt.
0: Well, it was interesting. You you really focused on five what people call swing states that were really traditionally blue states, and you went to counties that had historically voted uh, Democratic, uh, largely Union counties, and 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 places that were. Uh, You had a lot of blue-collar workers, a lot of what I call just American folks, Uh, and so it was fascinating to see why they made the decisions that they did.
1: It it was, you know, we did only the five states in the Great Lakes—Pennsylvania, Iowa, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Michigan—the five states in the Great Lakes that had switched. The only other state that switched from Obama to Trump was Florida, which, of course, is almost a country to itself, and so. Those five Great Lake states, and we, we went to, to ten counties, all of which had switched as well from Obama to Trump, and we 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 varied it up. You know, we divided every, we started out our process by dividing every county in America in America into strata uh, based on their size and based on their educational density, uh, and we tried to have a wide variety uh, of sizes in in the counties we chose. You know, little Lake County in northern Michigan was less than ten thousand people. Uh, and then Macomb County in the suburban Detroit, you know, which has about a million people. So uh, we we really varied it up uh, in 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 the kinds of places we went, uh, but still showed you places where sort of the the realignment was happening, sort of in front of your eyes.
0: Well, you know, we're talking right now about how we have such a divided country uh, that there's so much friction. I I did go back and read something uh, last week about john adams and the federalist and thomas jefferson and the republicans so this is not exactly new in american politics
1: (laughs) no no you know democracy is a series of rhetorical combat you know but but politics tends to lag what's happening in the culture at large politics reflects our culture and i think you can see the same phenomenon what's been going on with the nba and their problem with china in the last two weeks in the news you know and the the, the NBA has been afraid to take a stand on Hong Kong protests and largely it's because the NBA views itself corporately as a citizen of the world. They don't view themselves as a citizen of the United States of America. They view themselves as a citizen of the world. They, they think their future product market is the entire world. And so therefore they bring a global sensibility to that. And that, that, that sort of change in attitude in the corporate C-suites in America is, 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 is reflected in some of the same things you saw. Uh, In elections, when you saw sort of the the corporate two corporate type candidates, Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, uh, get beat in the last election.
0: Well, it's interesting. Uh, I am uh, since I'm being totally politically incorrect on this one, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I'm a big Braves fan. And obviously, we come to the deciding game five in the series with the Cardinals were at home. We've got everything lined up in, in our way. And we, the Braves decide to be politically correct because uh, a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals of Cherokee Indian descent makes a comment that the tomahawk chop is uh, politically incorrect and immoral. Um, and so the Braves in that game don't have the chop. They don't play the music. They don't give out the styrofoam or the foam rubber tomahawks. And they get their ass killed. So the baseball gods are politically incorrect. And uh, yeah, I think sometimes we, we just overdo things uh, today. We try to view the world in a you know 2019 prism, which I think is just very, very difficult to do. To, to, to go back and rewrite history and what was going on, in some cases 200 years ago, is it, it just, it's very difficult right now. I, I just think we're a little bit out of control. Well, it, it
1: is. And, you know, part of that's because news moves, uh, you know, at the speed of YouTube, uh, and, and uh, people who get behind the curve tend to over, overcorrect uh, because they're, they're seeking to, uh, it, sort of get rid of their problem before it goes viral. Uh, and oftentimes that creates a new problem that's viral. Uh, and it's, a. We're just in a, in a in a very interesting period of time where the elites in all manner of our society, be it commercial or political, have not yet quite caught up with sort of the pace and the uh, uh, ability of the average consumer to seek out their own information and, and react to it quickly.
0: Well, we build our, our agency's success on what we call red states, tribes, and lifestyles, meaning that we're... We're really not focused on what people in New York or the West Coast think because we're engaged in things like country music and college football and NASCAR and hunting and fishing and all those kinds of things. But politically, someone asked me the other day, they said, Rick, where do you you fall on the spectrum? And I laughed and said, my party no longer exists. I'm an Eisenhower Republican. And if you remember, Dwight Eisenhower in 1952, was asked by both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, to be their nominee for president. Uh, that's unbelievable that how close those two parties were philosophically at that time. There might have been a little bit of a nuance, but they were very—coming out of the Second World War, people were in alignment— um, uh, I, I guess it was John Adams that said the two-party system would be the bane of our existence. Do you think in American politics there is a place for a, for a third party? Uh, do I, I don't, don't for, lie,
1: a, for, for a couple of reasons. Number, number one, a two-party system uh, sort of gravitates toward equilibrium. You know, Whenever one party gets a, a dominant run, they tend to move to the poles of their ideological side and therefore leave a void in the middle. And so the other party, even if it doesn't have its act together, can can grab a lot of real estate up in the middle and grow back toward equilibrium, merely really not even to the, because of their own competence, but because the space is left open, the real estate's left open. So wildly successful parties do not continue to market to their most marginal customers. They begin to market to their most fanatical customers, uh, which is a little bit different than the way corporate corporate America has always worked. Uh, although I would argue that we're now entering a phase where the corporations think they're being rewarded by by, by fringe marketing as well. Uh, and so that's 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 really the, the two-party system has a lot of equilibrium. Second of all is, you know, ballot access laws in America are very tough. You know, in, in 2016, there was a, a significant effort to try to get a third-party presidential candidate on the ballot. But if you wait until May when both parties have picked their nominee— You've now missed the ballot in Texas and North Carolina. Uh, there's no way to get on at that point in Texas and North Carolina. And so uh, two to the ten largest states in the country. And so if you want to have a third party, you would have to begin trying four years out uh, and have to begin working on ballot access laws four years out and working on – ways to petition on, maybe to cooperate with existing marginal parties, Uh, and no one is quite ready to do that four years out because they always still have hope that they can change what happens in one of the two parties. So that's the practical burden to it. Uh, But systemically, our our system, just the two-party system tends to uh, come back into balance every time it gets out of balance.
0: Well, I'm going to leave politics uh, before I piss everybody off because uh, you can you can do that. And I I want to talk a little bit about your involvement with the Coach to Cure MD program, um, how that came about, how you became such a champion for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. That's how we met. We become friends. We have become colleagues working to find a, a cure for Duchenne. So talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, you know, some people get involved with a, a charity the hard way. Uh, By picking it over a lot of other charities, I got involved with Duchenne Muscular District the the easy way. Uh, My nephew was diagnosed uh, back in 2005. I only have one sister, and she has one son. Uh, And so first year, uh, Joel was diagnosed with Duchenne, which, by the way, is a progressive muscle disorder. It's 100% fatal. Uh, Life expectancy is just the 20s. Uh, it's a brutal, awful disorder. Uh, boys get diagnosed when they're three or four years old, and every single day is a little bit harder than the day before. That they lose a little muscle uh, ability every single day until eventually their heart, which is also a muscle, goes. Uh, and so, at the first year Joel's diagnosed, I stroked the biggest check I could afford uh, to the to the quest to find a cure. And the second year, he after he was diagnosed, I stroked the biggest check I could afford. And so. Eventually, there I realized I'm never going to be able to write enough checks, and so uh, we have to find ways. Elizabeth, my wife and I, have to find ways in our life to leverage the other things that we have uh, to, and other to to find a bring more resources to bear for this cure. And so, uh, Philip Fulmer, for, who was then head coach at the University of Tennessee, is a friend of mine, and he and I came up with uh, this notion for coach to cure MD. You know, the college football coaches at that time did not have a sideline charity. Uh, where they all did the same thing on the same day during the season to try to draw attention to a cause. And so we felt like there was a void there. Um, and it, it really wasn't easy. We spent over a year and a half trying to develop a proposal with the American Football Coaches Association that would work for them. Uh, and eventually, in 2008, we came up with Coach Secure MD, where coaches every year in September, on the fourth Saturday in September, wear a patch on the sidelines. Some people may do it the third week in September if they have a bye, so the, the idea, though, is for the entire profession to be talking about it in their press conferences, wearing our logo on the sidelines. A lot of coaches now have a Duchenne boy on campus at some point in September, uh, bring him in for practice or have him wow. be an honorary captain for a game. And that uh, that that bring a aware- notion of, of awareness to this disorder helps us raise money. And it also helps other people who are maybe diagnosed with the disease realize they're not in this by themselves. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a lift to the community in a lot of different ways.
0: Well, I, I know the football coaches are very, very, very committed to this, and you've, it's been a, a long process to, to begin to get scale to this. I kind of feel like this year we might have turned the corner in a big, big way. Um, we were fortunate enough to persuade our client, Warner Ladder, that uh, has traditionally been involved in college basketball in a big way with the latter cutting down the nets to, to get involved with college football. We'd done all the research and showed that the, largely the, the construction trade that they sell to, well, those people prefer college football over any other sport. And uh, we knew we wanted to be in football, but we also wanted to give back. Um, and so we created this program, Step Up with Warner, and part of it is step up and help us find a cure for Duchenne's and that gave us some media and some clout that I think we're going to be able to build on.
1: No question. And, and what, what you guys at Fishbait have done have been phenomenal for us. And you've hung in there with us as, uh, over a long period of time. And there are days when we didn't know if we'd find a way to scale this or not. And uh, I agree with you. We have, we have uh, uh, maybe achieved a little bit of a breakthrough this year. And, you know, most great ideas are not overnight sensations. They're like over-decade sensations Uh, and so we've now been at this for 12 years and, um, you know, I think we, the, if you see the commitment level of a coach who has, who has a boy with Duchenne in his life, who met, met one of those kids, uh, it's just, it's just a powerful thing, you know, and fans can go on YouTube and look at what's happened at Ohio state or San Jose state or, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, There's just tons of Washington University of Washington, Seattle, tons of places where these kids who have Duchenne and are really, Every day is a terrible day than when worse than yesterday. Uh, and then they go out on the football field and they meet other young men uh, who, who maybe are in a different spot in their life. Uh, it it, just, it it's, it's a really special thing. And, uh, you know, I had a coach who coaches at the NAI level tell me one year, he says, You know, I do this, but I don't do this for you or your Duchenne boys. And I was kind of taken aback when he said that. And he says, I do it for my players because one of these days they're not going to be my players and they're going to become the next politicians and scientists and business leaders in America. And he goes, I have four years to tell them that they got to be about something bigger than themselves. And coach to MD helps me do that.
0: Well, I, I like, I like to tell the story that, uh, the reason it's a perfect fit in college football is that, you know, the story is that, you know, when you're, son first starts throwing the ball around in the backyard with you my son gets diagnosed and when your son puts on those pads in the third grade to play midget football for the first time my little boy's in a wheelchair and you know when your son puts on uh, pads to play high school football my son has deteriorated and even more and once your kid gets to run through the t in knoxville uh you know, my son is heading towards the, the twilight of his life. And I think coaches really wanted to do that. You know, it is a muscular disease. Football is a muscular game. But Brad, we're close, I think. I really believe in this era of genetic research, we are very, very, very close to finding a breakthrough and a cure for this. And, and I like to tell people the dollar you give to Coach to MD or to Parent Project Duchenne's could be the dollar that does it. I, I you know, I, I
1: think that it is we, we are on the cusp, you know, and, and we didn't even understand how this disorder worked until nineteen eighty-six. Uh, it's the most common lethal genetic disorder diagnosed in the young man's in, in a childhood of a young man. I mean it is it is the largest gene in the body that's defective. We didn't even understand how it worked till nineteen eighty-six. And when we started Coach to Cure MD back in 2008, you know, Rick, there had only been one clinical trial of a potential therapy in the United States, just one. Uh, there are 50 trials underway right now, and there have been 50 trials underway for the last two years uh, in per- perpetual in the United States. And so we've had two therapies approved. They affect a, a small population of, of these boys, and they're not a cure, uh, but, but they are help uh, and that, that in itself is a breakthrough. And once, once the those FDA had approved those two therapies, we've just seen a resurgence of interest in, in uh, uh, the biotech sphere for, for research. And we also, by the way, wouldn't have gotten those two therapies approved if the public hadn't demanded it. The first one, that, uh, people always ask me, say, does this really matter? Does it matter if I give a dollar? Does it matter if I learn about this disorder? And the answer is yes, it does. The first time a therapy came before the Food and Drug Administration, they rejected it. Uh, and the, F- the United States Senate went in an uproar uh, over that rejection, and the FDA reconsidered its decision and approved it. And then they approved a second one subsequently. Well, the United States Senate did not get in an uproar overnight. They did got in an uproar because enough of their constituents had learned about Duchenne muscular dystrophy and had a big heart for these boys. That happens through things like Coach Secure MD. That's what drives that awareness. And so- Getting involved in a cause like this, you think, well, what I do today matter? Absolutely, it'll matter. The dollar you give matters. The, the word you spread, just people merely telling other people about it. Uh, it that, that in itself also makes a big difference.
0: Well, we were fortunate to get Whataburger uh, out in Dallas this year to do a promotion for us where uh, – if you donated a dollar, they gave you a dollar coupon. So, they, you know, you got free whole, food. whole Whataburger
1: yeah. coupon. You, got, you yeah. got a free Whataburger coupon. And that money uh, is going to go toward, we have a goal. So Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy is our mothership. Uh, and that's the charity that, uh, Coach Kerem is a part of that, of that charity. It's the largest grassroots charity devoted to this cause in the country. Uh, and, and a few years back, Parent Project began certifying clinics that followed the best practices for the treatment of Duchenne. Uh, And part of the issue with a disease like this is, you know, if you're a pediatrician and you see one of these cases, it might be one of only two cases you see your entire life. So the first one comes along, you may not even know what you're looking at. Uh, And even if you're a neurologist uh, in a medium-sized town in America, you, you may not come across many of these cases. And so the standard of care really varied a lot. And so one of Parent Project's missions has been to standardize care through the certification of duchenne care clinics Uh, and there are a little over two dozen of those clinics around uh, the country right now where these clinics follow the best practices so if your kid gets diagnosed with duchenne first thing you do is you go get in the car and drive to one of these certified care clinics so that you know you're getting the best care in the business Uh, there's not one in the southwest not in Texas, anywhere in texas or any state that touches texas so we have as a goal to establish a certified care duchenne care clinic in dallas and that's what what did this year with their promotion is to sort of help us provide a whole lot of money to toward that objective we're going to announce the the total raise this coming saturday at the smu football game uh smu's undefeated everybody's pretty excited about that in dallas we're excited about getting to announce it there uh and of course it re- re-establishes that tie between college football and Musker dystrophy.
0: well i'm a big believer that um the two businesses you're engaged in politics and charity, uh, are noble. Uh, I'm st- I still believe, I guess I'm a little Pollyannish, but I think people get into politics to help people. And I know what we're doing uh, with coach to cure MD is helping families and helping young men and helping the young men that are not yet born. Uh, and so I'm, I'm proud to be your partner in this. I'm proud of what you've done. Uh, I'm proud of Joel, for the things he does, um, each and every day. Um, so Brad, this has been terrific today. I want to thank you a lot for being with us, uh, from the bridge. Thanks for the opportunity as always. Here's the season finale of on the road with Rick. We've talked a lot about politics today, So here's a great place to eat in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's the Old Ebbets Grill. Founded as a boarding house near Chinatown by William E. Ebbett in 1856, this restaurant is still around. Many political celebrities spent time at the bar there, including Presidents Andrew Johnson, Ulysses S. Grant, Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, Warren Harding, and Teddy Roosevelt. The restaurant has moved two times before settling permanently on 15th Street near the White House. It fell on hard times in the 1960s, and then a tax lien forced an auction where the current owners bought the place. They, they didn't want to bid on the whole place. They wanted to bid on some china and then found out they could buy the whole thing for about the same price as the china, and they bought it. Today, it's both a local and a tourist establishment. They have wonderful, classic American food. Start with a bowl of clam chowder or oysters on the half shell or an American cheese sampler. Move on to great burgers and sandwiches or entrees like wonderful crab cakes, all washed down with a classic American lager. The Old Ebbets Grill, a truly American institution. So that's both our show for today and a wrap on season one. It's been a lot of fun, and I appreciate all of my guest anglers and everyone who has listened. Special shout-out to my producer, Lindsey Collins, who is a rock star, and my son and colleague, Ryan Jones, who has worked with me daily on these podcasts. Have a happy holidays, and we'll see you back here from the bridge next June. In the meantime, as the great beach music group, The Tans, once sang, be young, be foolish, be happy. This is your Captain Rick Jones signing off.
1: This has been your Captain Rick Jones from the Bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to They want me to be